Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with Kinstead Wealth, where they give private investors access to the best asset class managers in the world. As a business owner who simply did not have the time nor the knowledge to manage my own financial assets, I was always on the hunt for a partner that would be able to give me access to something more than the stock market. Two years ago, I was introduced to Kinstead Wealth, and my eyes were open to an entirely new set of possibilities. Their pension endowment style approach to portfolio management allowed a portion of my portfolio to be allocated to non-traditional assets such as private equity, private agriculture, private real estate, and private infrastructure, amongst others. This allowed me to have access to non-traditional assets that have return expectations superior to public stocks while having lower volatility. With these assets added to my traditional portfolio, I had the opportunity to enhance my returns and lower my volatility overall. You may be asking yourself, what do you mean by non-traditional assets? In short, these are institutional quality assets that are not promoted to the retail market, but to the pension, endowment, foundations, and family offices due to the fact that their minimums are very high. By partnering with Kinset as an investor, I was able to gain access to these financial vehicles that are typically out of reach for most people. To learn more about how Kinset can help you and your family, please visit them today at www.kinstead.com. Kinstead Wealth is a very proud member of our community and donates 1% of their top-line revenue every year to the charitable sector. Hello and a warm Collisions YYC. Welcome to my returning guest, Miss Jill McDonald. How are you doing, Jill? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. And we played some tag to get here. Busy, busy people trying to find a schedule alignment. It's been, I think we were just joking before we are chatting before we push the record button. November 2020, uh, which is just, it's in the past, but I'm not really sure when, you know, year and a half, two years ago, you and I first connected not long when you were in the role of uh, Director Enterprise AI Integration at Alta ML. Congratulations. I, I'm creeping on your LinkedIn. You have recently moved through a few different roles there. And X amount of years later, you're now Vice President business development, national lead and managing director for Calgary. So congratulations on the evolution and cl- your clear path of success at, uh, at Alta ML so far. Thanks, Tyler. It's been a really, really fun journey over the last year and a half. If I look back at you, right, when I look at November 2020, I'm like, when was that? That does feel like a lifetime. I think you even saying like pre-COVID, post-COVID. Um, but it's been really amazing to be at this organization as we continue to grow, scale, and and just kind of adapt in a way to where we're seeing the market going, and and have an opportunity to work with such a different, diverse set of customers. So I'm re- I feel really fortunate to to work with everyone alongside as we. I can only imagine that no, no no dull days exist exist in your world. <laughs> oh goodness, uh, I'd say not not necessarily no dull days for sure, but some interesting conversations every day. I think that. We're in such an evolution right now as the digital journey really starts to take space for everybody that now it's a lot more of who's doing what, how do I become involved, what's needed for me, or I'm just not sure how to go from where I am today to where I go. I think that was still a a common note we talked about in Mm -hmm. November 2020 that's still there. But you're definitely seeing the conversation evolve now and, and we're finding we're having to lean in to advise a lot more. It's not that we don't necessarily do kind of paid engagements to advise, but we find in the market that's been really helpful just to guide and direct a lot more just because it is such an unknown space for individuals that haven't been there. So it's been a lot of really good conversations, lots of candor and transparency, I'd say, in terms of just being really honest about where we need to be or where people need to be. Having real conversations, there. stepping out from behind what might appear to be going on to talk about what actually is, is, is going Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Well, we chatted about digital transformation for non-technical leaders, which I want to chat with you a bit about, but never want to make any assumptions. 
let's jump in the elevator. We've got 30 floors. Tell us what, what, what's an Ulta ML in case, in case anybody, I'm sure most people in my audience have heard of you guys and know about you, but what's, uh, how, what's the elevator pitch sound like? Mm. Ulta ML, goodness. Um, and this is a, this is going to be a good journey for me as I'm re-refining a bit of our elevator pitch, but I'd say for us, uh, we really work with clients and customers to create products, AI products that are going to substantially enable you to achieve that optimization, look at new revenue opportunities, look at opening different potentials inside your business by creating different ways of working. For us, it's about how do we augment and uplift human potential by doing that and doing it in a responsible and ethical way. We're definitely underpinned by every responsible AI practice and have a number of certifications and, and recognition around that. But for us, it's about really enabling our customers to create the value they're looking for or to open up the opportunities for new revenue through AI. And we've really seen that using these tools can bring about a lot of better understanding in terms of how, are you, how can you mitigate risk? How can you enhance your decision making? How can you automate? the way you work or certain decisions. And a lot of that can come through when you start to look at the data and you start to understand trends, patterns, correlations that you can't necessarily pick out in the human eye. And that's been really powerful to just enable our customers to just see different ways of working and also see a potential by using AI to automate their work or discover new things or predict elements they didn't know were possible. Ooh, that's wicked. All right, we're now we are now going to spend the next forty-five minutes unpacking everything you just everything you just rolled out. <laughs> so curious, right off the bat, uh, enterprise level SMB, where, where where do you find that you're playing the most frequently, or is it kind of up and down the scale? Most frequently is enterprise level. I think as we look back as an organization, we've played in all sizes. We've played in startup space, SMB, but really over the last year, we've really moved into the enterprise space. We find that. When we look at, at who we're targeting right now, you're, you're typically looking at organizations that have started on their journey around digital efforts. They started to look at where, where is my roadmap looking like? Where do I wanna be as an organization? They've got quite a few of those strategic levers there. We've found as we look at AI overall, and for us, we're always going in it with a mind of how can we enable success? We're not just doing work for the sake of doing work. That's definitely not in our value. And as we look at how do you enable AI and how do you enable it to be adopted, there's so many critical pieces that we believe need to be there, like leadership alignment, strategy around digital, and some of those, which is why we typically lean on the enterprise because they've been, they've been looking towards that for a while. But we do have a number of clients in the SMB space, and then there are certain startups where we do partner with, where we see a strong fit and alignment to, to our purpose as well as theirs. Okay, so from the... the <clears throat> all up and down the scale, but uh, clearly with the enterprise level, you've got a, maybe, well, they're already on the journey. It's, it's already part of their roadmap. So curious, when they come in and chat with you, you mentioned consulting at the beginning. Are they already coming with a hypothesis of like, hey, we have a data set that we've been collecting. We think that we can find out this, this, and this. Or is it sometimes a little bit of a discovery mission where you're exploring, hey, we have the data. And you, you said something earlier, a couple of things, but you said that you're not always going to catch with the eye. Like you don't, when you don't know what you're looking for, you don't, it's kind of hard to find it. Um, how much is that balance between organizations coming with a hypothesis of, hey, I think if we, if, we, if we conquer this, we can get to here versus, wow, we've got a whole lot of data. We're not even sure where to go. What, what's the balance of, of those two things? And has that evolved? At all? Like how much has that changed over the last couple of years? So I'd say the balance is what we find is 
you're right, there's two camps. There's the organizations that they have this one idea, or I really wish I could do this, or this is this costs us this much, the, or could we enhance this, or... And so you start, typically we can start a conversation there, but it always leads into a discovery. We find that, that the idea and concept is one thing, but we really need to dive in on what, what kind of prediction are you looking to make? What outcome and value are you looking to see? And then diving in and looking at the data as well. Can the data actually enable you to get there? And, and so there, there is that way to start there. We typically always don't want to just look at a singular opportunity for us and for organizations. Typically, you don't want to be just looking at one thing. We believe in a portfolio of opportunities. We believe in making small bets, failing really fast if you need to fail it. And then also making sure you don't have everything hampered in on one opportunity. So you're putting all of your eggs in one basket and say that opportunity doesn't go forward for a variety of reasons. Your data may not be there. Maybe you're having some sort of restructure in your organization and you need to pause that work to enable certain things to happen in your business whatever that may be, having a portfolio makes sure that you are looking at a number of opportunities at any one time and you're able to continually progress them through that life cycle of development. So you're not kind of putting that risk all in one. So I'd say we might typically start with one idea where we are that someone's come to us or I want to look at this or we're looking at building a certain product or we're looking at a new revenue opportunity. Um, and then we'll typically look at some discovery and ideation around what are some other potential areas? Where are you going with your strategy? What do you want to be as an organization? And start to see what other opportunities are there. So you can have that as that portfolio, just because that one singular idea, um, typically you're, you're putting a lot of risk in just having that one uh, in your organization, unless you've been doing this time and time again and you've already built up that reputation in your organization, but many haven't. And so putting the idea of embarking an AI more fulsomely on one does put a risk, just in the event that it, it may not go forward or maybe pause, then there's gonna be questions around that. And that, that try, like, you know, try, try, fail, learn, or, you know, learn, fail, move, fail forward, all those, all those catchy terms. Are you finding companies are getting a lot more comfortable? Because, you know, I think you and I have chatted and I've chatted with many other guests about some cultures are just really, that's a scary concept. We don't fail mm -hmm. in a project. We get it right every time. But hearing you talk about this, this, you know, failure framework and this portfolio of opportunities, portfolio of learning, are you seeing like are we are are we the proverbial we as large organizations getting better at understanding that this world that's part of it <laughs> versus we either got it right or we didn't kind of mindset? I'd say we're getting better, but you know what's interesting is I, I had a conversation earlier today with a client, and I think what we're noticing too is depending on where you come from your background. So those that are strong financial professionals, our CFOs, our accountants, they're always looking for give me full cost ROI, and you're coming with that lens, and rightfully so, because that's been what you your career has been built on, you're always coming with that view, but it's sometimes really hard to step back and be in that, uh, I don't wanna say R&D or innovation, you could call it different terms, but being a different way of thinking where you're gonna have, invest in a portfolio, and not kill it if the first idea doesn't get you that 10 million opportunity, but maybe gets you 500,000. And so that's where you are seeing a shift. We are seeing a lot of leaders lean in to how do I need to think differently? What, how do I need to operate differently? Where, where do I lead, how do I lead my teams around this? Or how do, I, how do I buy things like this? Do I buy it? And so there's lots more conversations around that, but I'd say just some of those subconscious ways we've all worked uh, definitely are, we're slowly chipping away at it, if I could say. 
I don't, I don't want to relate if it's incorrect, but it sounds a lot like selling marketing and brand sometimes as a marketer. <laughs> What's the exact <laughs> ROI and what days are going to happen? I'm like, well, we can make some forecasting, but I don't, you know, it's hard. There's still a little bit, <laughs> yeah, which can be a hard sell depending, depending on who's in, in the room. So one, I'm, I'm going down in the weeds here. If you took 10 of the projects you were working on, would you say, and maybe if you can, how many of them would be intended to generate new revenue versus how many would be in, looked at more from, wow, this is going to be a real cost savings? How much are we directly throwing money at the top versus, wow, if we can cut this back, wow, this is going to be a game changer for organization? Good question. Uh, I'd say probably half and half. Can I layer in another opportunity, which is like risk? Yeah. I'd say environmental reduction, like your GHG impacts reducing okay. that or safety human safety risks. Um, so I'd say at times those can be lumped with optimization or cost savings. But I'd say we're probably, if I did say out of 10, if I looked at those three categories, I'd probably say we probably have two to three on a new revenue opportunity, um, probably another four on cost and another three around risk. And risk then of course can be, could be a new revenue arm as well. But I'd say it really depends the way the organization is coming at it. And we're finding as more uh, organizations lead with a product-based mindset, how am I thinking about this as a product? Could I, would I want to generate revenue from this in future? Like, how could I be that first customer? How can I build that for myself? Get those benefits and opportunities, test it inside, and then take it out and, and market that. There's definitely an opportunity for the commercialization aspect, and you're seeing companies go through that journey as well, that they may build with for themselves, but have an eye to, could we use this with our, with our own customers? Or could we use this as a differentiator too? So it could start out as its own kind of optimization, improvement, risk reduction, but then it sees so much value, and they could see how they test it internally and then repurpose it to commercialize. That's definitely something we've been seeing as well. Which that's hey, that's like that's right in the MBA case study wheelhouse of you know you optimize for internally, and then all of a sudden it becomes a spinoff. It creates this value because you had such a big problem to solve. Hey, maybe other maybe other people have the same problem to solve. So that's an interesting way to think about you know you invested for yourself, but there is that opportunity depending on the company and the all those things Absolutely. that it can actually become a whole part of your business that you discovered because you solved your own problem. Mm -hmm. Is it looked at through that entrepreneurial lens at all? Like with enterprise and innovation, enterprise and entrepreneurship, and those are fun buzzwords to bolt together, but I know a yes. lot of large organizations, they struggle to make that happen in, in real life. Governance, that's not the way we do it, like those kind of things. Does this start to push at that a little bit sometimes? It, it definitely does. You know, what's interesting is we've got some partnerships with some organizations where we're trying to bring that startup entrepreneurial culture because mm -hmm. that's one that you can't have in some of the large organizations. <laughs> so we're saying, how can we jointly carve off some teams together, work in this kind of startup way with that entrepreneurial spirit on your ideas, on your opportunities inside your own, your platform, in your cloud environment, and, and bring some of that different way of thinking. And we found that doing that, you can organically see deep different behavior changes, see ways individuals are leaning in, and then that kind of helps propagate it internally as well. And so that's something that we found is like, how do we carve this off, create a little bit of an ecosystem together so you can have this product mindset, this entrepreneurial thinking, startup culture. Um, and that's definitely something that we love to work in that way with our customers, just because we found that it can bring another different differentiator to way that they're working as well. We do find we're pushing the needle, as I said, on candor and transparency on, mm -hmm. okay, let's try it this way, or I don't know if we're going to do that. That's going to get the outcome you're really going to want to see, and here's why. And 
really trying to push that way of thinking with them. Well, being a change agent is neat. It's a fun, buzzy. It's a fun thing to say. It's another thing to actually live it and breathe it day to day in the trenches. So, spinning back to spinning back to our last conversation, your digital transformation for non-technical leaders. Curious in your own view from our conversation that we had, let's just say a couple of years ago, year and a half ago, to now, things that we maybe we're struggling with then around digital transformation and being a non-technical leader and just some of, I'll call it what it is, the raw fear sometimes of like, well, wow, I just don't mm-hmm. feel comfortable. Has that evolved? And you know, through its evolution, what's showing up now? Because there's always the next level, right? You graduate through one level of it and then you're like, oh geez, there's this whole other area that I didn't even see coming as I was on this journey as my organization embraces more and more digital transformation from all different different sides, not just AI. I'd say when I look back at our conversation then, you're right, you touched on fear. I think fear was such a huge thing in the market in terms of what is this gonna mean for me, my job, how is that gonna be? And there was also the early stage conversation of AI and digital was there, people were using it, but were we really doing it? And I think as, as we saw COVID accelerate quite a bit of that, we saw individuals using technology more, needing to rely on technology. It was starting to shift around, okay, not what is this, but how do I do it? And so it was very early stage of like, how do I get involved? How do I get integrated? Where do I start? What's my first step? And if I think about the last year and a half, it's ever many people, and I think there's some stats, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, um, but I believe it was a Gardner article I was reading recently, that it was around 80% of organizations that have already embarked around building and and establishing AI tools. I, we've got a long way to go in the market in terms of adoption of those tools because we're still sitting around stats, I think around 30 or so percent in, in their figures. Um, and I may be off base on, on a number or two here, but got a lot embarking, still struggling to get the adoption. And now I think our conversation is more, okay, we've started this, we're either not getting the success we wanted or we need to grow and scale where we are. I've had a lot of conversations lately with organizations that have large data science teams that are building a number of AI products and they're looking to scale. How do we operationalize this? What's a different way an operating model to do this? How do we scale our business? How do you support us in that scaling effort? Um, And so that's been another journey is more not from how do we start, it's like how do we continue or pivot the way that we're working on today? Okay. And if I'm a, if are you seeing our non-technical leaders just getting more okay with being on the journey or are you seeing more individuals go, "Hey, how do I skill up in this area? How do I at least go get my foundation?" Like is it as simple as one it's always a mindset, but two, training and understanding and you know, when you don't even know how to speak the language, it can be very intimidating, mm-hmm. especially for someone who has a high degree of expertise in their current lane. This gets nobody likes to feel out of out of sorts for too long, like maybe a few minutes, but not for days and days and days. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I'd say with AI, typically it never, actually in successful ones, you're never just going to live in your IT department or your information yeah. services department. They really will likely have to live in your business or your operational operational area. And that's so critical. Um, so you're typically right. Having non-technical individuals, non-technical leaders leading many of these programs in coordination with their IT function. And so we do have more individuals we're finding, you're right, they go and ask like, how do I become more fluent in the language, in the terms. Um, So there's still quite a bit of the asking of that. And then what we're finding is, how do we create an ecosystem that people are comfortable saying, I don't know what we're talking about. Can you you dive in and, and create that way? Or create it okay to say like, we're not expecting you to be the expert. Here's some things you should be thinking about. And let's give you some tools along that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's being open and, and 
honest that you shouldn't have to know. It'll be good for you to know. Um, but just being kind of creating that safe space. And that's what I think is important is, is enabling that. But I do think that it, we're seeing a lot more individuals come and say, well, I went on Coursera or I went on Udemy or I was on LinkedIn and I saw this course and I took this and, or I read this book. And so I do see a lot more individuals leaning in, um, listening, learning to at least get that foundational understanding. Okay. What, what I heard you say was, if you don't have psychological safety, you're going to struggle with this, with this yes. <laughs> is what I heard loud and clear. Our organizations, because I've been having a lot of conversations around emotional intelligence, like, you know, doing some work with SAIT and their six leadership intelligences, which I'm, intelligence of leadership, I'm a big fan of. And I just did an episode mm-hmm. last week with Jenny Gilbert on psychological, on emotional intelligence, which was our kind of next one after psychological safety. Are, are, are we getting better at that? And now we're drifting a little bit, but you can't yes. talk about change as humans if we don't have those two things, right? Mm-hmm. I think we are getting better at that. And you know, where I was kind of going around psychological safety is not necessarily on the up. So I'll use maybe an example. You've got a, a VP of operations and what you're finding is that they need to feel comfortable to even articulate to their leaders, their directors, their managers, their frontline staff, that they don't know all the answers. And it's that psychological safety in a different way. We're not finding that as much, say, going from the VP to EVP to CEO, like typically we're finding that there's quite a bit of psychological safety there and there's maybe a common lens of understanding. But what it's finding is that leaders are being okay to let their teams know that they're on this journey together. Where typically in that operational world, you may have made it in your career because you were technically strong, you were delivering, and you understood the subject matter expertise that you were leading. And now as you embark in somewhere, you understand the domain of what you're tackling. Maybe you're looking at optimization of an asset, or maybe you're looking at predicting and detecting cancer. And you understand that domain. We may not understand that the full pathway to get there using technology. And so it's being okay to lean into your teams and let them know you're on a journey with them. And that's a different level of psychological safety. It's more personal internally on well, feeling it, it, it comfortable. Can sound a bit, it can sound a bit vulnerable, just like let's yes, say human. Thank you. That's the term. Yeah. That vulnerability that I think actually helps others that are nervous, like going back to your fear, the fear comment. There can be fear on what is this going to mean for my job or how is this going to change? Like, it seems really good. I'm actually quite excited, but I still don't really know. And the vulnerability of leaders to say, like, I'm not sure either, but we're going to be on this journey together. That creates a space that people are willing to lean in. And I think that's really important. Like leaning into digital tools as a leader, specifically in the operational area, is necessary. You can't have an IT. You don't want to treat it like an IT project that someone's just doing something for you and they're going to hand you over something because it's never going to get the outcome that you want to see. Well, I think you you said it a little bit, you know, I love making the space, like making space for learning to happen, making space for, hey, Sage on the stage, I don't have the answer. It's okay. I'm, I don't know. <laughs> but but I might be a real solid expert in this area. Let's find out how technology can make our lives better. How critical is that union? And I, this is something that's come up in the show multiple times. Like a technology running around trying to find a problem to solve is very different than, wow, I really understand my problem. What's fine? Which technologies might actually help? Like, how critical is that? Like, to me, I, it sounds like a make or break in an organization. If you don't have the real understanding of the workflow we're trying to fix, optimize, yes. revenue generate, it doesn't really matter how many technologies you have in your cool toolbox. It's, they'll never, it'll never be successful. I, I think you hit it bang on. Like, they won't be successful. And I think that that's where times, like, people use their head, the analogy, like, hammer looking for a nail. <laughs> and that's where I think, like, 
also need to surround yourself. So if you're that leader, surround yourself with individuals that are going to be honest with you. Because at times there could be a lot of individuals and lot. There's lots of salespeople out there that are just going to sell you something because they there's think lots of hammers running around looking you to get paid. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And I'd say for us, if we come in and we we'll do a research in terms of okay, you've got this great opportunity. Um, could be in banking, for example. Has is there something out on the market already? Are we for us, we're not gonna. We don't want to recreate the wheel. If we could bring an opportunity forward and say, you know what, there's already a product here that could be beneficial to your solution. For us, it's not about creating something just to create it. And that's where I do know there's lots of sales professionals out there that are going to try and sell you something for it. And so it it is right to make sure you're using the right technology for your problem because there's so many diverse sets of technologies, different ways solutions can tackle it. That you do want to have a little bit of a critical eye, and so bringing someone in that could help be that little bit of an advisor behind the scenes to help you select where you're going to go or be honest and candid is definitely important too. Because we all have software or tools that have been built that don't don't get to the value of what we intended them to be. Well, and the ability then for them to even just play together in the sandbox is half the time what you spend. Like, oh, if I could just get this to talk to that and not to oversimplify sure. it, but at the most basic level, every organization has that now. Let's let's throw mm-hmm. more technology in there and see if it gets just, just automatically better. <laughs> it will not. <laughs> I'm curious about uh, your, as an organization, you guys come from, I, sorry, as I know, AltML is very much an AI and ML and that technology side. As you guys have evolved, that area of subject matter expertise, is that something you guys have pulled on as a thread? Because it's a big world out there. You just you named banking, you named met, you, you, your health tech, banking, you work in the energy sector. You guys have a huge breadth and depth, I imagine, of different sectors that you work with. Have you looked at, or, and is that a road that you're on, of bringing that expertise so that you can speak to both sides, the technology and the discipline? It, it's definitely, if I look through this last year, been an evolution that we're on. I think okay. we're noticing uh, that need. And right before, I'm just going to share something too before I dive in on, on kind of how we tackled that. When you look at an AI problem, mm-hmm. there's three things you need to have. One is data. Second is domain expertise. And the third is data science or ML developer capabilities. And so what we find is working with our customers, it's very much around what role do they provide in domain mm-hmm. expertise? But then for also for us, what we've seen over this last year is that we've brought on leaders like Rick Makos, who's very strong in the financial sector, spent most of his career in there, um, as well as manufacturing. Similarly, another one of my peers, Brent Willett, who's a supply chain expert and been very, very great in supply chain and the digital world around that. We also have launched uh, and starting up a number of new ventures um, and there were some partnerships with Amplitude announced last week in the, the health space. Um, we've got some joint ventures with Spartan Controls in the industrial automation world. We've got a joint venture with AlphaLayer, which is within the financial sector as well. And so for us, we found that having access to domain expertise has been very helpful to complement our customers' understanding of their problem in their sector because we can bring a, a different way of looking at it as well and to complement where they go. And we've found that that's actually been really helpful for us just in thinking about different ways of operating or what, how could you tackle that problem or opportunity. And that's just been something that we can really round out. So for us, we've definitely leaned in more okay. to some of that domain expertise. We definitely don't, don't cover that across everything. And um, we've got a number of individuals in the energy and resources space just because of our growth in Alberta. Mm-hmm. 
um, that we've seen that that power and opportunity. But I'd say for us, if we have that capability or can bring that in from one of our joint ventures or partners, we've got a number of other ones in veterinary health and legal, we will absolutely do that. Just to bring a different thought and perspective for us, uh, diversity of thought is critically important. Diversity in responsible AI development is important too. You want to make sure that you don't have one singular view of thought because then you may be biased in one way as well. And so bringing that th that perspective has been helpful. They may not know, of course, every tactical process step, and that's where our, our customers know that intimately. But we can bring a different perspective on, well, this may be happening in another sector or another type of company very similar to yours. How do we bring that idea here that could be really, really important to accelerate where they well, could go or how a, they build something? You have such something. a benefit to kind of be inside the conversation for so many different industries. And as we all know in business, you hang around long enough. It's sure it's different, but there's a lot of similarities. We're all solving similar different sides of a coin for sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think I may have shared this when we chatted last time. Like there's definitely been, that's where we're not everything to everyone. And, and that's important for us. Like we do have subset of sectors that we focus on that I've been talking about, the financial health, energy and resources, retail supply chain where we're not everywhere um, but we have worked in far more sectors than what i've just shared there but we do find that there's opportunities in terms of how we've looked at ultrasound and cancer detection uh, technology and how we've built that to how we're optimizing a refinery some of the methodology the mathematical equations that go into those are very similar even though they would be look like two separate problems and so that's where ai it's not agnostic to a sector it's not agnostic to a problem. It's, a, it's more around how, what is the right way, as you said, what's the right technology or in our space, like what's the right approach, the right methodology, the right equation to solve the problem uh, rather than maybe always the problem having to be so distinct because it's not in the same sector. Well, that's the advantage that provides some scalability. And it's like, well, we might not have worked in this exact same problem, but this looks like a lot like this other problem, which allows efficiencies and your teams. It's it's always building on. It's not having to learn net new every time, which is obviously great mm -hmm. scalability. You touched on something and certainly you don't have to go too far down the road of AI to really start getting into the conversation around responsibility and the concerns around, I think you summed it up, a single view of something, whatever, whatever that might be. How do you guys, how do you tackle that problem? Because I, I would imagine a lot of these data sets were collected, maybe not with the right set of filters or not even knowing when they started being collected five years ago, what the, what the use case might be now. I can only imagine the amount of work and time that goes into ensuring that before you go build a solutioning engine, you need to know what it's pulling from. <laughs> Absolutely. And so for us, we've partnered with the Responsible AI Institute. Uh, I'll provide you that link later. Yeah, please do. Um, and have quite a number of processes that we've established um, and those that we'll work through with all of our customers in terms of how do you identify, how do you mitigate, and how do you protect. Uh, and so as you start to look at what I was mentioning around data collection, if we were to say, have looked at one, I'm in my mind story is just around assets. So let's look at assets. You've only collected data on one singular type of assets that are very similar. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to predict uh, a certain feature about that asset. Without having categorized and looked at any other assets, maybe you only looked at one region, you didn't look at another subregion, you're only getting features related to that one area. And so you're not understanding if there's a number of other variables that could be at play that could actually get you to that outcome. And so that's where even just some fundamental pieces around how you've looked at your data collection, does it give you a good understanding of your sample size and of 
all the attributes you're looking at is really important. Like a lot of times we find that people are thinking about responsible AI in, in the ethical standpoint and the human standpoint, when in reality, that is a critically important element mm -hmm. in terms of mitigating, reducing um, bias and ensuring there is it's no certainly bias. certainly the one that the media loves to latch onto from a yes. headline perspective, no question. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and that is critical and, and so important, but it, making sure that there isn't bias in, in asset elements is critically important as well, or in your supply chain, or in how your algorithms are, are predicting. So that for us, that's really important. And so we'll go through and, and kind of and assess every single opportunity we look at inside of the first stage of model development. We do a thing called a feasibility assessment that not only confirms we were clear on some of the problems we're looking at your data as in a way to be able to get you there. But we also start to look at how we identify protected variables, hidden biases that might be present, presented. And then we really want to make sure that we understand how we're going to mitigate those how we're going to protect certain things and how we explain that, how we explain that to the, the client, but then also how we explain how we're going to augment or reduce and make sure that all prejudiced elements are removed. That's been really important in taking our clients through that journey and educating them on where bias could occur, why it could occur, and in areas that they don't necessarily think. It's just been a really good journey for us and I think one that what we are all part of no matter what, whether you're using tools that are digital or you're creating them, thinking about how they're built in a responsible way is for all of us so necessary to be at the forefront. Taking that, and maybe the question doesn't apply because I feel it might it might come up often, but taking those 10 projects that we talked about before, which you kind of laid out, you know, these are X amount for revenue, savings, risk. Out of that 10, how many would the data be the first big like, oh, geez, we thought we had something better. I want to be careful with the word better. We thought we were going to be good in the data department, but wow, that's really going to, that, that just, that's what we have to do first versus jumping right into it. Out of those 10, does that happen? Sounds like the majority of the time because it, it in some way or another, that data has got to be set up to work for whatever solution you're trying to apply against it. Well, you know what's interesting is most companies when we're talking with them, the first thing is like, our data is not in a good space. Oh. <laughs> and so that's an interesting thing. Like, data like shame? Our data is just shame? not there. <laughs> totally. Or some are saying, you know what, we're not ready for AI or we've got to get our data in order. You know, it's, it's like getting in shape before you join the gym. Like exactly. Kind of <laughs> or Exactly. And so this is where I will actually say that you won't know what you may need to do on some of your data if you don't actually understand how you're going to use it. And so if you were trying to predict cancer, for example, in certain biopsy elements, if you aren't sure how you might go about that or some of those pieces, what we find is you actually need to dive into your data against some of the problems, opportunities, ways you may want to use it to better understand, do you have it in the right way? Do you have enough of it? Do you have the right type of it? Do you have the diversity? Do you have all the other certain data sets you may need? Um, and without actually understanding how you're going to use it later, we find people go back to the table. They'll say, okay, I'm going to build this entire data lake. We're going to centralize our data. We've got a full data strategy. And they'll go and do that. And then they'll say, okay, now we're going to lean in and we're going to start to do some robotic process automation, some AI, and automate all these things. And then they start to realize, oh, wow, okay, I wanted to do this, but now I don't have this data set. And they didn't know that. And had they known that, we could have solved it really quickly when they were doing their data strategy and building the data lake. Could have been one quick way to capture. Now, 
it's likely going to cost a lot more money. They're going to have to go back to the table. And there's sometimes is this like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that again. And so this is where I'd actually say doing them in parallel is really valuable. And when we start to dive in uh, to portfolios of AI opportunities, we'll start to uncover. You're right. Data is one of the biggest questions that we have. And we can do some quick assessments as it relates to what are some of the opportunities? What does your data look like? Uh, more often than not, we're actually finding it is in a better state than people believe it to be because they've generalized the statement. Um, but then there's lots of times where we'll suggest, you know what, you actually need more data or you don't have enough data on this type of feature or this certain thing if you're wanting to do that. So you may need to go back and get that or sometimes you can purchase data, sometimes you can create synthetic data. Again, synthetic data has its own uh, responsible AI elements around there as well, but there are options. And so we just find, try not to do one before the other, do them together and they can work to work more seamlessly. Avoiding assumptions, like really actually truly knowing what you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you, and until you take that hood off, you never know. Like if your car is breaking down, for example, and you're taking it to the shop, you may have an idea. But until someone's actually looking in, I think they, it's this. Have you, you opened the know. hood? Well, no, but I'm pretty sure it's this. I'm like, mm, okay, but I'm going to take a look anyways. How about that? <laughs> yeah. And some mm, that's problems. That's a good simple metaphor. <laughs> some problems need a very, very large data set. And that's typically this word big data is always kind of thrown around. Mm -hmm. With AI, yes, the more data at times likely does create a better outcome. But there's some ways where you can quickly test. Like we've been really um, working with this idea that say you've got a, a, long, a strategy. How do you use um, some of these tools and technologies like AI to prove out some of your concepts? You want to be able to automate your supply chain, for example. How do you do small tests to actually know that you can get there? And when by doing that, you then know if you have the right data, you're testing out that idea and you're quickly doing it. So you know if you need to pivot so you don't have these long drawn out strategies and projects and then never actually get to the outcome you want. And so the quick tests allow the opportunity to test and prove that you can do something, but then also see if there's opportunities where you need to get more data or you need to reframe what you, that is possible or understand the cost of the problem today in a different way. And so I, I couldn't mention more about the value of testing and trying, and that's where I think we, could, we use the word fail fast too and have portfolio because that allows you to try, test, create things faster and you learn quite a bit uh, along that journey. And I can only imagine the culture that your culture is evolving and growing as well with these little micro wins or multi micro experiences that you have, which could be failures. But if you're purely doing them for learning, well, then the word failure also starts to become Absolutely. defined differently as well. So by the time six months, a year, 18 months has passed, your team that's been working on that is completely potentially shifted their mindset, which is allowing these sprints to happen faster, deeper learning. Great. We learned that. Boom. Let's move on to the next thing. You can't underestimate bringing people on the journey. Again, I'm, I'm being a bit predictive with that statement, but I can only imagine that's what happens. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you do see that, that kind of change in thought where the individuals were really nervous at the onset. I don't know if we can do this. I'm just going to, or like, uh, I don't know what this is going to mean for me. And then they're your biggest advocates. They're selling it internally. They're so excited. They're, they're bringing other people into the conversation about like, look at what we could do here. They're feeling excited that they were a part of that journey as well. Like really feeling that they, they helped make a difference. They were totally out of their comfort zone and look what we can do with technology. And so that, that is definitely, we've seen that quite a bit. And then there are largest allies and advocates 
um, which is so powerful. And typically those that are the largest questioners at front end up being our, our biggest <laughs> champions. And as anyone who's been a partner to an organization, if you don't have those advocates, there's holes in the boat before you even, before you even head out. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Anything that, you know, it's so easy, and I gotta be careful because I'm from the outside of this world in a big way. Applied AI, ML, robotic automation, is there anything around specific if you get, you know, beyond defining just some of the initial acronyms, is there anything you're really seeing from a trend? Like what technologies in this sector are you, are you seeing get traction or, you know, I'm not even sure if I'm asking the right question because I'm kind of at the top level of like, I get it, but I know once you get in there, there's all kinds of depth and, and, and complexity to saying the word applied AI or saying just the word machine learning. Are you seeing mm-hmm. anything that's evolving to maybe starting to stick a little bit better inside all that? Gosh, I could take this in so many different directions. <laughs> I'd say, like, we're of course evolving in the in the, te- the ability for computers to take even more complex data sets. You're seeing okay. far, far more growth in, in different areas of computer vision, natural language processing, natural language generation, all different uh, forms of AI, whether you're using imagery or video-based or text-based elements and you see more and more complex or things like reinforcement learning, which is really about teaching the computer to learn through reward. So should they need to get to a certain outcome, it gets a reward very similar to how you could give a human a reward and it like tries sounds to get that very faster familiar. And faster. <laughs> yes, reward based, like you could think of it a lot in the gaming scenario, but mm-hmm. it is quite used quite a bit more and seeing a lot of growth there. Um, but I, I think as you step back on it, I think what you're starting to notice is is as people lean into it more, it's a lot around, there's a term called MLOps, like how are you operationalizing mm-hmm. and productionizing AI? So not only is AI building this proof of concept, you really need to take it outside of the experimentation and that concept idea to, to implement it, deploy it, integrate it, build the software tools that wrap around that, the user integration, user experience they have with that. And as you do that more and more and you're productionizing that, and you're needing to leverage real-time data more and more organizations are starting to see that they need to understand what what am I going to do for this MLOps platform? What what kind of architecture am I going to need? What variety of tools should I have? And how do I productionize this to, to make it a faster, more repeatable way every single time you need to deploy an AI tool? And that's something that that platform of that is becoming more and more important as organizations lean into building AI. You can build the tool in, on its own because it's unique to a problem, but it needs to be part of an entire platform to be able to really get that benefit as you start to productionize more and more. Okay, so it's more as the technology is moving into, quote unquote, when the rubber hits the road, if you will, or when it hits the, yes. the production floor, how do you operationalize it in a way that actually works throughout the organization? Interesting. Yeah, and, and which, how which are you sounds like the evolution. Sh- that sounds like it would be just the natural progression of taking this out of the out of the lab and putting it into the on, out onto the floor. <laughs> and as you you've put one out on the floor, then you want to put more and more and more and more. And that mm-hmm. it, it looking at your MLOps is really just how are you going to set yourself up for success there? How what does your data pipeline look like? How are you connected to your your data assets? How are you integrating this with system and tools? and just making sure that that feels more seamless. And that's definitely from the technology piece. And I'd say the other evolution is really around how are we how are we all embracing and leaning into this? And we just talked about some of the candor, transparency, and vulnerability. But that, uh, I'll say it again, is more just technology isn't, isn't just built for us. 
It should be built with us. And that's a critically important piece that individuals are leaning into that. Where traditionally when you were doing software based, where you're going to be a rules based, you're gonna say, I want the program to do this, it, I click this, it does this. Um, it could be a little bit more hands off, but in an AI world where you have the output and the answer you already want, but you're figuring out what are all the scenarios, characteristics, features that are gonna get you to that answer. Um, it's a real joint way that we're validating together, making sure, and then you're thinking about what's that user experience? How, what kind of software integration are we going to need? What kind of business process change is gonna need to happen? What kind of fear conversations am I gonna need to lean into? That that's where you do see people needing to lean into it. It's not just, here's a program, go use it. Because that's never gonna be the way. Um, and say the third one is the, the war for talent. Uh, oh, you, 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 you beat right me to my one. next question. <laughs> yes. How, how, how is it going out there? I'm assuming it's not getting any better. You use the word war I, for a reason. <laughs> uh, yeah, pro the problem is probably too, too strong in, my, in that word choice, but I'd say um, we, like everyone, uh, have, are, are all looking for talent. Now it's a global talent with the remote work yeah. and the ability to work um, wherever, whenever. Time zones don't necessarily matter. It's very much on skills and capabilities. I'd say I feel like we're fortunate, um, more fortunate than some. So we've got a talent accelerator and we're actively building a number of others where we've got this opportunity where we can bring in and have a really strong funnel of talent, of, of ML developers, of business solution consultants, of software developers. And that's one where these talent accelerators, not only can LTML benefit from that, we get to see and have the opportunity to select from the best. We also do these talent accelerators in tandem with partners. So we bring this offering to market where we're able to give this pipeline of talent to our partners while we have that talent actually building AI products and deploying them. And so we use our mentorship and our methodology and we're overseeing that where we have this kind of mutual team of associates as well as our, as our own that are actually building products for customers while they get this pipeline of talent. So where else do you get to watch and see someone work for four months delivering and building something for you before you decide, I think I want to hire that individual. That's pretty amazing. As, as someone who's done a lot of hiring over the years, that sounds amazing. <laughs> you, and, you get to go to the ball multiple times before you decide if you want, <laughs> if you want to date. Absolutely. And you know what? There's no requirement to hire, but okay. we know that many of our organizations have such a need for talent and large budgets in terms of being able to deliver, but they can't because they don't have that, that, those seat, I'd say bums and seats is totally not the right word to be using, um, but they don't have the individuals there. And so yeah. we're, we've kind of found an opportunity here where we can bring this, this curated funnel of talent. Like for example, I think for one of our, our cohorts of associates, we had over a thousand applications for 26 positions. We had individuals coming who had worked at Tesla and other areas where they just have a, a desire to be working in Canada, to be supporting companies wow. that are looking at things responsibly, they, they're feeling connected to it. And so it's been a really amazing opportunity to marry those that are looking for opportunities and they're not necessarily new grads. They could be masters, they're likely masters, PhD level individuals that have either refreshed their career or mm -hmm. they've really gone and done a number of phases of education and now they're looking for different work integration learning experiences. We'll almost call it like a finishing school in a way, <laughs> where we we teach them every like week in yeah. terms of how do you story tell, and we give them that finishing school, but you're building a product that matters for a company while, while you're both mutually deciding, do we want to work together in a more formal way? So it's really neat. How many cohorts world. have you guys put through that program? 
So we've put six. So we've got a talent accelerator here in Calgary. We've yep. also used one in uh, the, with University of Waterloo with a number of partners there as well. And then we're actively um, building up a virtual one as well. So there's no need to necessarily be located in either of these regions, just because we do know, especially right now in the environment we're in, most people are working virtually or connecting virtually at least 50% of the time. And so we're building one virtual right now. And so there's the opportunity for for any company that is looking for that, that not only wants to develop AI products in line with their strategy, but also is struggling with talent, this is a way to kind of marry the two. Well, the idea of remote talent in the world of the tech space, I have a lot of friends, developers, and they're like, hey, guess what? You guys are just catching up to the way we've been working for the last bunch of years. Like, you could work remote. You didn't have to be in an office. And again, that depends on culture. But that's one sector. Anyone I know who works in it is like, this wasn't that big of a shock for most of us because we've all done gigs where we worked with someone that was, we were never in the same city. We never were in the same room with them. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, you're right. I think that it was such a culture of that community for so long. And they're also, um, we found as we've kind of been in this hybrid environment over this last year, a lot of our developers also, there's a desire for quiet. So that if I'm sitting next to, to developer teams, talking away on video time and time again, <laughs> like for them, they, they are engrossed in in the work and the problem and really value sometimes that kind of quietness as well to be able to just be diving in into the technical work. And so kind of that blend for sure. Mm -hmm. in, in terms no, sitting of beside you or and I who are probably on the phone literally all day, every day, you need a good set of headphones. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yes, deep, we, deep in that world. <laughs> that's our first thing. Everyone that joins AltML gets a really great set. Noise canceling uh, headphones. <laughs> noise canceling headphones. Not only can you use on your calls, but yeah, trying to do that as well, just because, and that's something that I think we need to embrace is the, is the thought in terms of, how we're all of our work styles. How do we mutually benefit each other in terms of some of that where there's need for some of that solitude work, but then how do you energize each other when you have to come together? And, and that's been a, an interesting thing as well. You and I touched on that a little bit before we started recording, which could be a whole nother podcast. It's so much more about the individual, how they like to work, but also the type of work that they're doing because brainstorming over Zoom, not great putting my head down and solving a problem at home by myself, really great. So I think you really need to understand the, the dynamics of the task and of course the person, which you know, organizations that work with large headcounts, it's hard to individualize at that level. Hard mm -hmm. or not, that's the path we're on. And I don't think we don't have an option. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree. And that's where we've, we've taken a lot of steps if we wanna have some of those kind of inner office, in-person mm -hmm. sessions. We've done that with both our clients, some of our joint venture partners, and some of our teams as well. But we're finding this in this world that we're in right now, you just have to be a lot more methodical, a lot thinking about the safety of everyone at every point, making sure that everyone's comfortable in all those decisions, which we probably didn't really think about it in the past in that way, because I agree with you, the energy you can get from in-person connections, at least to me, and, and of course, I thrive on some of that, um, but we have found that those collisions just create different ways of thinking. And if we can't make it work, we do do the virtual, and you've got a lot of different tools to try and evoke it, but yes, I, I do agree. The, the in-person is definitely, my, I, if I could go back to that I, I, in a regular, I would. 
Um, but I know, I know where we are. <laughs> a friend of mine, and this is an overseer, he was a senior leader, a large organization, and he was very introverted. And he spent a lot of years getting used to being the leader and putting himself out there. And he always used to joke, introverts, unite at home by ourselves. Like he, that was this joke he'd make. And he goes, that would be my ideal scenario. But he goes, I get it. And he always, and not to overgeneralize introverts versus extroverts or anything like that, but I always appreciated, appreciated his version of unite alone at home by myself. <laughs> So he was quite happy with COVID, <laughs> was the short story. Jill, thank you so much for one, spending your time. I can only imagine how busy how busy your days are and sharing your perspective. I threw a few a few uh, curveball questions at you, which you always answer with vigor and uh, confidence, which I, I appreciate. If if people want to learn more about uh, AltML, what's the best way? And if people want to connect with you, what's what's the best way for people to to get to, to take this further? I'd say learn more about AltML. You can check out our website. I believe it's altml.com um, or LinkedIn, our profile there. If you just want to search AltML. Uh, similarly for myself, feel free to check me out on LinkedIn. Jill McDonald. I, I'm the only Jill with one L. Uh, it's its own story and podcast on its own about how I created that as I was younger. But um, always open to connect in that way and would love to, to have a conversation in terms of others that are looking to get in this or not sure how and not sure where to start or where to go. Uh, I feel like that's where we spend a lot of our day talking. On I, how we I, I appreciate that. And hey, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. I've got your last episode up here in front of me and you gave me some salt. You gave us some solid book mm. recommendations, prediction machines, creating value with artificial AI, intelligence based medicine. Also HPR's 10 uh, must reads on AI. Any new ones on your radar? Any books that you've, uh, that you would say are on the top of the nightstand right now? Ooh, you know what? I've been, lately I've been reading a lot more maybe outside of the theory of AI, okay. um, which has just been a lot of different ways around leadership and or change management mm, okay. and influencing change and some of those. I would just trying to think of, there's been a couple new, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Uh, I am officially putting courses. you on the spot, so I'm You're happy totally for you to send them to me spot. after. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm hey, if our audience that. is still listening at this point in the episode, they're in. They're they're okay. They're, okay. they're fans of us. We're good. Yeah, <laughs> I'd say let me send them to you because okay. I'm trying to. There is a couple out there that we've found. It's more takes you beyond just the what is this mm -hmm. to a lot more. And I found actually some of the education with individuals on do you have a cloud environment. How do you connect AI into your cloud environment? And some of those things is really important too. And understanding of, that, I actually have found really helpful for individuals just because most organizations are in that journey. And marrying the two has been really powerful. So a lot of 